You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome once again to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before I even get to this week's episode, I have to extend a huge, huge thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who donated to the GoFundMe campaign. Thanks to your generosity. I'm going to be in Austin for South by Southwest, March 13th through the 17th. My presentation, Where Are the Black Designers, is going to be on Saturday at 5 p.m. at the Austin Convention Center Ballroom E. So if you're going to be at South by Southwest as well, please let me know. I'd love to meet you. I plan on squeezing in some interviews while I'm there too, so I think it should be a whole lot of fun. Now, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. Um, MailChimp helps entrepreneurs and small businesses with their email marketing efforts by helping you manage your contacts, uh, sending emails, and tracking the results. MailChimp is really great for designers that are looking for a little inspiration, too. They have a uh, design lab blog, so you can see how the creative team at MailChimp puts together like their fun projects, like their billboards and videos and guide covers and stuff like that. Uh, sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. If you want a new domain name for your next project, I think you should check out Hover. Absolutely. They've got hundreds of top-level domains to choose from, and they offer free private registration, which normally you have to pay for that if you go somewhere else. Uh, speaking of top-level domains, their current featured domains are .inc and .link. So you can register a domain with each of these for less than $10, which that's not bad at all. Purchase a domain today and use the promo code 28DOTW, that's 28DOTW, and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, today's Monday, that we're airing this episode, and they've got really great bundle promotions every month. I'd also recommend checking out their community discussions and the Creative Market blog. Both of them are really great places to learn information and meet other creative folks you know that are doing what you do. So check them out, creativemarket.com. Lastly, Revision Path is excited to partner with Lesbians Who Tech for the 2015 Lesbians Who Tech Summit in San Francisco. Save 25% off registration with the code LWTREVPATH. That's going to be in the show notes. Alrighty, let's get on with this week's interview. When I asked Joe Blau if he was at the top of his game, here's what he had to say. No, not yet. I feel like I'm making my way there. I know a lot, but it's just, I felt like I was doing really well until I moved out to Silicon Valley. Because the level of intelligence here is so, you know, the, when you peak somebody's intellectual curiosity out here, you can get so enthralled in a conversation about some very low level technical thing. And the conversations are happening everywhere. This is Revision Path. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Joe Blau. And I currently work at Amazon as a software engineer. And I want to have a little disclaimer that the thoughts that I'm going to convey in the rest of this talk are my personal thoughts and not necessarily the thoughts of my employer. But I work at Amazon and I also have co-founded a company called Canopsis, where we work on in the Internet of Things space and using machine intelligence to enhance experiences, user experiences. Now, I've been hearing a lot of things lately where people have been talking kind of pejoratively about the Internet of Things. Can you kind of clear up what that actually is? Well, I actually am not really that gung-ho as well about the majority of what I see that pertains to the Internet of Things, just because I feel like it's an ecosystem where all the technology is already out there. You know, we've got the cameras, we've got the microphones, we've got the lights, we've got all of this stuff. And it seems like a lot of people are really trying to just mix and match technology, almost like throwing them in a, in a bag and then pulling out the two things that they want and then trying to make a piece of hardware out of it. Instead of actually looking at the technology in a way where they can solve an actual problem. 
right? For example, one of my friends, he sent me a link to this light that had a camera in it and a microphone. And I didn't really see the use case for it. But then he sent me a link to another light that had a sensor in it that used machine learning to determine when you were coming home, almost like a nest, but a light bulb. So I think that there are certain cases where the Internet of Things and the products that come out of the Internet of Things are amazing, like the Nest thermostat, for example. And then there are other cases of products where you just look at it and you a regular human being, you know, like my mom would not look at that thing and say, oh, wow, this is something I need. Whereas if you look at a cell phone, she won't go leave her house without her cell phone, which I would consider an Internet of Things product as well. So I think that there are two different sides of this coin. And I think it's very difficult to actually create new products, especially when everything is out on the table. You know, we have all the technology. So I would say that the industry needs to find products that are solving problems and not just mix and matching technology to say that they have a Bluetooth speaker that goes underwater, that has a light on it and, you know, can brew coffee or whatever. I feel like we saw a lot of those kinds of things come out of CES this year. Yeah. CES was definitely very interesting from the perspective of how my co-founder and I look at it, where there are a lot of technologies that come out and it's really just a question of, okay, this is cool that you've gotten all this technology together, but what's the use case? And another thing on top of that is a lot of people are building in silos, right? So you've got this one person that has this cool technology that does something, and then you have this other team that has this cool technology that does something, but there's no way for them to even communicate over the bridge of the internet to talk to each other, let alone communicate through some common protocol to talk to each other. So I think we're in the very infantile stages of really getting these foundational pieces in place to allow these devices to communicate with a human being and then secondarily communicate with each other. Let's step back a little bit. You mentioned earlier that you are working for Amazon. Are you at liberty to sort of talk about the work that you do with them? Yeah, yeah. So currently I'm a software developing engineer working on an iOS project, and it's called Amazon Local Register. And it is essentially a competitor to all of the card reader point of sale applications that you see out now. So, you know, you go to a a merchant that will be selling some sort of product or service, and you hand them your credit card. This service is designed to enter in information that's either pre-programmed or entered in at the time of sale. Swipe your credit card or you enter in your credit card and run a transaction and get your receipt via email or print it. Are they using that now? Um, There actually is a version that's out now, but the one that I'm working on is not tied to the current version. We're, We're basically building a native version of that from the hybrid existing application. Amazon, I'd say probably within the past, God, maybe like about the past five years or so, has really started to emerge more with a lot of this consumer-based technology. What's driving that? Yeah, I would say that there is definitely a strong push on the consumer end. And I'm not actually sure because I'm very new to the company. I only started four months ago. I mean, maybe like four months and three days. So I still don't know half of the things that are going on inside the company and I'm still trying to get my feet wet. So I'm not really sure what's driving a lot of those major decisions, but I would say that I noticed the same thing, especially last year. It felt like every month there was a new product that was coming out or a new service that was coming out that, you know, was challenging some incumbent software or hardware product. Um, so yeah. it's very aggressive in, in pursuing different, different technologies. Yeah, I bought the Amazon Fire TV stick because I wanted to see how it would <laughs> stack up yeah. against Chromecast. Yeah, and, and and also Amazon came out with uh, what was that thing called? The Amazon Echo, I think. Yeah, where it's like Siri and like a PBR can kind of thing. Yep, yep. yep. <laughs> I feel like it looks like a, it's like a Beast by Dre pill with Siri in it or something like that. Stacked right, up vertically. <laughs> but um, yeah, those are two very interesting projects um, because I feel like the hardware space is, you know, just like the Internet of Things is really blowing up, the hardware space is something that a lot of people are looking to as a way to re-energize the technology market. And there's a lot of money in the hardware space. 
So, you know, the Kindle Fire Stick is an awesome example of something that's a good product that just you plug it in and it just works. You don't have to do a bunch of other stuff. You don't have to do a lot of extra configuration. You know, a regular person could figure that out. Now, I haven't actually used the Echo, but it seems like it could be in the same category. You just buy this Echo, put it on your table, and it goes through and helps helps you out through your day. So. Mm-hmm. so speaking, I guess, a little bit about Amazon, I do want to dive into the diversity question. Last year, in October, Amazon had sort of released a report that had what their diversity numbers were for their U.S. workforce and things like that. And it's something that a lot of companies that are in the Valley have been starting to do. Mm-hmm. And they've all kind of come out with the same, I guess, <laughs> not decision. They, they've kind of come out with the same thing, saying that their workforce is mostly male, mostly white, that sort of thing. At, since you work at Amazon, even though you're, you're fairly new there, what is it like, I guess, diversity-wise? Do you feel like it's a very diverse workplace? Well... I would say that the numbers are pretty accurate, but I would also say that as a computer scientist, when I started in computer science, the numbers were the same, Mm -hmm. right? So when I look at what is actually happening, it's really, you know, like what we're seeing at this point is not the cause of the problem. This is the result of something that happened 10 years ago, right? Where... You know, when I went into computer science, it was the same ratio as it is in in Amazon right now. I remember when I first started computer science, and I always tell this story to my friends. When I first started, I was I went into school in 1999, and the class was diverse. There were women, there was different races. Everybody was in this one class, the Introduction to Computer Science, and it was 400 people that were in one session, and then there were 400 people in another session of the exact same class, right? So we all go in, and you start taking these classes like how to use Unix, how to program in C, and these classes are very, very intellectually challenging, and they're very, very, they're not conducive to you having a fun social life at college. You know, I remember times where I'd be working on building a four-bit processor from scratch, and my across the hall, you know, hallmate was about to go out to have a party at a fraternity because he had homework once a week for an hour and I had homework every night for three or four hours. So very slowly I saw this class of 800 students that was very diverse go down to my graduating class, which was maybe 112, 113 people. And it was basically what you see in the workplace now a few minorities in the case of African-Americans and also in the case of women. There were not that many women that graduated. And I remember even trying to get one of my friends to stay. She had made it through all of the hard weed-out classes. And she was just mm-hmm. like, I, I just, I don't like this major. I don't like this field anymore. And I don't know if it was, you know, the classes or what, but we never really talked about that. But I remember trying to get a lot of people to stay. And it's just people were not really into the field. And it also was at that time, I think in you know the early 2000s, computer science wasn't really looked at as the job, you know, like the one of these crown jewel jobs as it is now. You know, there were a lot of people that did a lot of startups in the late 90s. And then that all fizzled out in 2000 when the bust hit. So nobody was really thinking about going back into computer science. And so I think just those two things coupled have really made it challenging. And I would say also from my perspective, my dad, he bought me a computer when we were very young. Um, I think I got a computer when I was 11, I would say. And so, and my brother was three years younger than me. So my brother went to MIT um, and he's a micro genius, got his master's in five years. And so we had computers when we were really small. And I think that that's really where it needs to start. And I think that the cell phone era is helping a lot of younger kids get access to this computing technology and understand what's actually going on when you talk about interacting with a computer. And I do think that these numbers are going to change over time, but these are generational shifts that need to happen. And it's not something that's really going to be changing in the next two years or three years. This problem is going to persist. So I do think that, you know, I definitely, I'm usually the only black guy at any company that I work at. There's been, I think, two exceptions to that. But I'm usually the only technical black guy at any company that I work at. So, What's that experience like? I would say for me, 
it's a little bit different because as a kid, my dad worked for the State Department, so I grew up all over the world. So I never really saw race in the same way that I would say somebody who's grown up all their whole life in the United States has seen it. Like when I was young, I grew up in Africa for two years. I lived in the Dominican Republic for two years. I lived in Brazil for three years. I lived in Panama for three years. And so, and I also lived in DC for about seven years. So I never really saw, like, I feel like I have a different perspective on just life and culture in general that I can't generally apply to everybody in everybody's scenario, because I never really saw a lot of that a lot of that turmoil growing up, but I know people that have grown up in like Boston downtown that have seen very high racial tensions as they're growing up and it's reflective in how they behave and how they act. So for me, I feel like I have like a very open personality and I don't look at everything in terms of, you know, where you're from, you know, what color skin are you, all of that. I look in terms of, you know, how smart are you? You know, can you do the job? Are you the best person to work on this project? Do you have a good enough personality where I can have a good interaction and conversation with you? And can we talk about intelligent stuff without having to divulge into a lot of like medial talk and things like that? So I wouldn't say I'm the best person to answer that question, but I do feel, I mean, it is different hanging around at uh, you know in the office versus when I'm back home with my boys and I'm hanging around. I will say that. Okay, I got you. I completely understand. <laughs> I completely get that. Yeah. It's important what you mentioned about that this is something that is it's, it's a generational shift. I know that when a lot of these companies came up with their diversity numbers last year, one of the things that I kept hearing was that, okay, we'll see if it gets better next year. And I'm thinking it's not going to get better next year. It's probably going to be about the same maybe marginally better or worse, like plus or minus a percentage point for margin of error. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's a generational shift. Like you said, it's not going to just change overnight. And based on what you're saying, it kind of sounds like it's also, it's partially a pipeline issue, I feel. Mm -hmm. In that, like you said, you know, when you're starting out and, and I can just tell you my story. So we probably started college right around the same time. I started in like the late 90s, like 99. Yeah, me too. And I was at at Morehouse and I started as a computer science, computer engineering major and was so excited because my mom wanted me to major in it. And I kind of had a passing interest. I also kind of grew up with a computer and stuff, too. And from watching like a different world and seeing Dwayne Wayne as a computer engineer and stuff, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I want to do that. I was interested in computers and video games and stuff. And I remember starting my intro to programming class and the class wasn't hard, but the professor sort of like actively tried to make you like flunk out of the course. It was yep. like some weird kind of, it was almost like something you see out of an anime or yeah, something. Yeah, those, like, those, those are those like, weed out classes. Yeah, like the professor like is trying to like weed people out. And I was one of the ones that got weeded out because I wanted to, to work in like the web and do design and stuff. And he's like, yeah, you should probably change your major because you're not going to find that here. Yeah. And I switched to math, which I completely <laughs> empathize with you about the whole work. Like, there are people I know that really like partied a lot, and I just remember doing proofs mm-hmm. and homework and stuff, yeah. so I completely understand that. But it is, you know, it's a generational shift. It's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Now, you went to Virginia Tech. What's their uh, computer science program like? Their computer science program actually back in the day, so in the, in the early 2000s, was very, very Stellar. It was one of the best computer science programs back then. I think it's still actually very good. The teachers are still the same, but I don't know if, like, I haven't been back there in a while, so I don't know if they've made the shift in terms of teaching the students about the web at the time when the web was really the main driver and now switching over to mobile when really mobile is the main driver. At the time, you know, it was a very strict, rigorous C program. So we did everything at the lowest level you could possibly do. We built computer hardware from NAND gates, and we did all this very low-level knowledge learning. And I think it was a very, very strong foundation. And I think that that's the type of foundation you need, but it also needs to be coupled with some sort of reality. Because when you get out of college, you know, the next step in this line is, well, now the next step is start a startup. But back then, the next step was to get a job and you need to have some real job knowledge to some type of knowledge that will translate to an employment. And I think that as long as they're doing that, which I haven't checked, but the computer science department of Virginia Tech was top notch back in those days. 
And I remember I would compare classes that I was taking with classes that my brother was taking at MIT, and um, they were pretty similar. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. MIT, the teachers that are teaching the classes actually invented whatever they're teaching <laughs> versus Virginia Tech. But both of those schools were, you know, it was a very top tier learning program, I would say. And everybody who I know that went through Virginia Tech CS, a lot of them are doing a lot of big things right now, actually, in terms of the open source community and closed source community. Okay. So you went to Virginia Tech, you graduated. Tell me about what your first kind of working experience was once you graduated, your, your big break, so to speak. So I would say my first experience was I worked at this company called BBN Technologies. And they basically, their claim to fame was that they worked on the ARPANET. Uh, basically, they were one of the subcontractors for the invention of the internet, what is today the internet. They had the second domain name ever registered, uh, so BBN.com, which was after the first company, which was the primary contractor. And you know, they invented all this stuff like packet switching. And so I worked with basically geniuses. These guys were doing stuff in the hallway with hardware and software that you know I'm not really allowed to talk about, but it was mind blowing stuff. I was working there as a developer slash IT, and that's really where I got my feet wet in programming and learning from some of the best. Like We had one, one of my colleagues, he would download viruses and decompile the viruses just to look at the code. Wow. Yeah. Like, this is what this guy does on his spare time. And he was a genius. <laughs> he was a genius. So... Because he would say people that write viruses usually have to write very elegant code because you have to make this thing as small as possible and be able to trick all of these you know, web servers and email programs and make it look like something else. So he would just go in there and look and read virus code you know, for fun. And he had thousands and thousands of viruses downloaded on his computer that he would just look at. Wow. So when you graduated, did you move directly out to the Bay? No. So after I graduated, I actually lived in Virginia for a few years working at some government contractors. That was one. I worked at another government contractor doing system security. And then after my third company out in Virginia, I just had dreams of you know starting my own company, doing my own thing. And so I basically packed everything up one day and I just flew out to California. I had no job lined up. I just came out here, stayed with one of my cousins and did a bunch of interviews over two weeks and then got a job out here working at a, a small company down in Palo Alto, which did data analytics. And then after that, I ended up quitting there and co-founding this company with my now, my now roommate. And we've been working on this the IoT space and mobile application development really since then. Yeah, you mentioned earlier mobile is the main driver, and I think that is is definitely the case now with smartphones and tablets and wearable tech and and things like that. Tell me about the company that you started. So our company is called Canopsis, which is basically stringing together some words, contextual operating system. So what we foundationally believe is that there's a lot of technology in your mobile device right now that is just it's being used on one-off cases, right? Like you use your camera to take a picture for Instagram or you use your microphone to record something. But really when you look at the amount of sensors on a mobile device as a whole, you have basically, you know, like it's almost like a human being. You could correlate the sensor technology to a human being, right? The sensor, the phone has a screen, which is essentially like a, a skin where you can touch it and it can react. It has a camera, which is essentially sight. It's got light sensors, which can tell the difference between light and dark. It's got a microphone, which essentially means it can hear you. It's got a compass, so it has a sense of direction. It's got an accelerometer, so it has vestibular sense. It's got a clock, so it has a sense of time. It's got NFC, so it can know proximity with Bluetooth. It has GPS, so it knows where it's located. It has altimeters. It has speedometers, thermometers, barometers, heartbeat sensors. It has all this information, which you could almost equate to like a mini human being. But the way people are using it, is at such a basic level. And what we're trying to foundationally do is take these sensor technologies and build something that can that can use all these sensors and help you complete some specific task, whether it's something about improving your life or automating some sort of hardware in your life or doing something that you know pushes really the boundary of what this mobile device that you carry in your pocket with you all the time is doing. 
What are your next steps of growth with Canopsis? Have you started coming out with apps and things already? Yeah, so right now we're in the process of building a product that revolves around some IoT um, uh, IoT uh, devices, and we're looking at the, specifically the light space just because lights are something that are pretty easy for everybody to get a handle on. They're still very expensive. I mean, in order to have smart lights in your house, you have to be fairly wealthy. I mean, a regular light bulb pack of six for regular light bulbs is going to cost you like under 10 bucks. But if you want six smart lights, you're paying, you know, maybe $400, you know, just for lights to change color. So you have to have some disposable income. But a lot of people seem to understand and grasp the light concept. And we're at least willing to try to buy lights and see what you can do in your house, how you can change your experience. So we're building something around that. And then we're also doing, we have this kind of like, I would say it's kind of like a skunk works side project where we're, we're working with um, machine learning in particular and tapping into a lot of these sensors to see if we can come up with some interesting results using some of the uh, machine learning algorithms and some of the sensory technology. Now, some of the stuff you've done has not always been kind of this next level things. I saw when I was looking at your website, you've also built a number of mobile games as well. Yeah, so one of the things I really like to do in terms of just life is I like to figure things out just to figure them out. So one of the projects that I built, I built this game, which is on the App Store and the Google Play Store and the Amazon Amazon Store. App Store. Yeah. yeah. And it's called Orb. And I built the game in like four days. But the whole purpose of the game was to discover, was to really figure out the difference between what happens when you launch an app on the App Store, the, the Apple App Store, versus the Google Play Store, versus the Amazon App Store, right? Because a lot of people will publish all of these metrics about this platform is better, this platform is better, but they're not showing numbers. They're just kind of being flippant, giving you a response. So for me, I like to do actual research. So... I built this game and I published it on all three stores, released it at all the same time. And it gives me an experience of what is it like to publish an app on Google? What is it like to publish an app on Apple? What is it like to publish an app on Android? You know, how do those experiences differ? What are the trade-offs? How do you do the testing, user testing when you're trying to get this app launched? You know, um, things like that. And so I build a lot of projects kind of as test projects just to see what the result is. And this kind of goes in line with the whole Scumworks project, right? It's just something to test out a theory that a lot of people are spinning around but have no concrete evidence to back up what they're saying. So now when somebody tells me, oh, you should build an app and launch it on Google, I can say, well, when I launched my last app on Google, it was the exact same app, the same code base. It got you know a couple hundred downloads, whereas Apple promotes your application no matter what it is out of the gate. So I had a couple thousand downloads in the same first two weeks, right? And I can tell you about the engagement numbers on each of the platforms. I can tell you about the ad revenue on each of the platforms. For example, the ad revenue that I got from Google is higher per person than the ad revenue that I got from Apple's iAds, right? But because I have the numbers in my, that I can access to tell you that information. So it's really a lot of those projects were just for me to play around, try things out, and really test a lot of hypotheses that a lot of people say and talk about, but really have no concrete numbers. Or if they do have the concrete numbers, it's some report that you have to pay $5,000 to you know, get the information. <laughs> so I just figure I'd rather just write the code, run the test, see what the real answer is. And then when somebody tries to debate it, I can say, hey, let's just log into my account and I can show you the numbers. So which platform did you find was the best? Well, I guess best is subjective, but yeah. out of taking into account a number of different factors, which was, I guess, the easiest? Well, say that. yeah, I think, you know, best is really subjective. Obviously, with Google, the, there are far more Google devices on the planet than iOS devices. You're going to be able to reach a lot more people with any product that you produce on Google's platform or on the Android platform than you will with iOS. Now, that being said... There are still about a third of the Google devices that or sorry, the Android devices. I need to be clear because Android and Google are not synonymous. There are a third of Android devices that are not affiliated with Google at all. And those are the ones that run out in China. And that was another part of my test was to see if I could deploy an app into the Chinese app store and see how it would do over there, which was pretty challenging. 
And uh, somebody needs to start a startup to fix that problem. With Apple, you can do it because Apple has already negotiated all the contracts. But if you're trying to deploy an Android app into the Chinese market, it's very, very difficult. What makes it so difficult? All those Chinese app stores like Tencent and whoever owns them, they're all in Chinese. You need a Chinese bank account. It's just, you know. Oh, Yeah, I'm sure it's not actually hard. But if you don't speak or read Chinese or don't have any connections there, that's where the barrier is, right? You need to form some sort of business strategy around tackling that problem. I got you. But I did try. I tried to use Google Translator. I tried to talk to some of my Chinese friends and I tried to get <laughs> get something going over there. But it's it's just very difficult right now. Um, and you got to think, right, if you, you're leaving out one third of all these, when they quote Android as having, you know, a billion devices, if that's the number, right, you're just saying, well, I'm only going to deploy to th- two thirds of those, right? Because those are the only ones that have Google Play Store accessible. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of if you want to have something that's very tightly technical, you know, if you have a very, a very narrow technical target, I think the Apple platform is, provides a little bit more of support around that because Apple does a lot of things for you because their platform is so narrow. You know, they only have three or four phone types and, but the technology in the phones is, is very narrowly scoped. You know, you, with an Android phone, right, you have to, there are a lot of Android phones that don't have cameras. So if you want to build Instagram, you might miss out on hundreds of thousands or millions of phones because they're Android devices, but they just don't have cameras, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to account for a lot more variability with Android. And so if you just want to do something very narrow, very focused, I think Apple is the way to go. If you want to do something where you really want to play around, I think with Android, you have a lot more freedom to really get outside the bounds of what it is that you can do with a mobile device. Like for experimentation and for more control, Android is definitely the way to go. But if you have something where you know you have a very tight target and you're prototyping, iOS would be probably my choice for that. Now, as a software developer, what do you think that software developers now really sort of need today that's lacking? They need to understand essentially everything about what's going on in the development stack of a product. There was one of the one of the applications that I built, which is on my site, which was actually testing this whole theory. And it was this game I built called XO9, which was just a play on the ultimate tic-tac-toe game. And so what I tried to do was I took 12 weeks and I basically did everything from coming up with the basic information about how the game works, the logic, the different levels of AI for the bots in the game, all the way up to doing the marketing and trying to distribute the game and get you know get some visibility for what I was building. And I think that as a developer, there's more emphasis on what you need to know about how things work. So for example, a developer needs to understand what the product development team's visions are to be able to help the product development team understand what's possible in the limited scope or time that they have versus what's not possible in the limited scope or time that they have. A developer needs to understand design, like whether or not the designer's decisions that they're making are going to have a negative impact from the code perspective of what they're building versus Maybe they can work with design to change something to make it easier to program and make the product come out and be more stable at the first version and then maybe do some iterations later. The developer needs to understand the testing cycle and work with the testers to be able to understand what their concerns are and how they're trying to basically test your application and make sure that your application is able to withstand a bunch of different interactions and still not crash, right? Because that's the crashing is one of the things that is the most frustrating for any user. You know, if you start an app and it just crashes, you might try it two more times and then you'll be done. So they need to understand that. They need to be able to work with security because, you know, security right now is, I actually got my background when I was in DC, was in a lot of security work. And now security is at the forefront of everything because everybody's getting hacked. You know, Sony just got hacked and lost hundreds of millions of dollars because they didn't want to invest in a security program to make sure that their data was secure up front, you know, and now people are probably going to be more skeptical 
to work with Sony or to communicate with Sony or to invest resources in Sony or to even buy Sony's products when you know that the company is not really doing its due diligence to protect the software that your information is running through. So, you know, a developer needs to understand those concerns and those concepts as well. So it's almost like the developer is a central cog in the wheel and needs to work. And everybody's trying to work with the developer. And that's a challenge because there are not that many developers. You know, when we go back to what we talked about earlier, people aren't making it through computer science. You know, it's a very challenging field. So I think that we need more developers, definitely. And I think that even some of the other majors... And some of the other components in the cog need to also be able to work the other way with the engineers, right? Some people, I mean, everybody needs to learn how to program at some level now. Um, it's it's going to be a mandatory skill coming up here soon. Because even where in the last few places that I've worked, everybody has some some knowledge of programming, whether it's just some scripting knowledge or some light, you know, like high-level programming or low-level C or, you know, low-level compiler language programming, you need to have something. If you don't have that, somebody else is going to automate your job right out from under you. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I know that there's always this sort of ever-present discussion about whether or not designers need to know how to program or need to know how to code. And it comes up every now and then. And I think what you're saying, though, is that they don't necessarily have to have like full stack knowledge, but they need to know if they encounter something sort of what to do or how to design around certain coding considerations or things like that, right? Yeah. So I can give you a concrete example, right? You can go to any, go to Dribble, right? That's the perfect place to go if you want to see a bunch of quick comps, right? You can look at people that have like a setting screen, right? And in most people's setting screens, they'll use the little iPhone switch to determine whether or not a setting is on or off, Right which has a very clear affordance for a visual affordance for on and off. But in iOS, if you're coding that up, in order to put a switch into you know, that list takes more work than the default action that Apple gives you, which is a check mark, where if you click on a row in the table, it will toggle a check mark on and off, right? So you can just click, click, and that's built into the operating system versus you having to make a custom view to build a switch to put in there, right? So if a designer knows the difference, like, oh, if we're just trying to do a quick prototype, let me just use the check mark first, and then we can upgrade this to a switch later versus trying to design for really a visual design as opposed to a functional design. And I think that that's like a very simple example, but you know, those are the types of things that can come up in design. And there can be some that are way more complex than that. Like just something as simple as like, oh, I want this, I want this screen to have a border and slide down. To write the code to do that in Objective-C or in Swift is generally not that trivial, but to visualize it is not that hard. So I think that you know, just having an understanding of when you make this decision, there's going to be more effort if you choose this you know, widget versus if you choose that widget. I think that level of understanding would be definitely help in, in terms of the communication between developing and design. And sometimes it's just one of those things where the designer is just going to learn it in real time when they're working with a developer and they tell a developer or they ask a developer to design something this way. And then the developer comes back, you know, crying and yelling like, oh, my gosh, you're making me do all this work. Right. So. You learn either that way or you're going to be proactive about it and really figure out what's going on at the low level. Tell me what a typical day is like for you. How do you sort of split your time between your full-time work and your business? Generally, my days are crazy. So generally, I get up at, I would say, 5.36. I usually go for, I either go for a run, which could be anywhere from three miles on the short side to 10 miles on the long side. And if it's a shorter run, like a three-mile run, I'll come back, hit the gym, and then I'll come upstairs. I'll usually get online and read all the standard things like Hacker News, Designer News, Product Hunt, TechCrunch, a bunch of sites just to figure out what's going on. I'll either make some breakfast or grab some breakfast. Then I'll walk into work. Thankfully, I live I'm in a position where my office is about a mile and a half from my apartment. So I just walk into work. And then usually when I'm walking into work, I'll call somebody just to, you know, run some ideas by them. So if I have something on my mind, I'm thinking about some new machine learning algorithm, 
or how to apply this machine learning algorithm. I'll call some of my friends or call somebody who's smart just just to talk to them or call my dad or call my mom. Uh, I'll get to work usually around 9.30 and then it's just work basically. I'm at work working from 9.30 till 5.36, you know, whenever I leave. And then um, I'll do the reverse walk. So sometimes I'll walk back with my coworker. Sometimes I'll just walk back alone and call somebody else, call my girlfriend or call somebody else on the way home, talk to them. And then I get back home and then it's my my time essentially. So I'll start programming. I do research. I'll be doing design work. I love sketch and a lot of the design tools that come out of there. I watch a lot of videos. I do a lot of online classes. I mean, basically, I'm learning like I'm in college right now. Like I basically come home and I do homework. But my homework is practical homework from homework projects that I'm thinking up. So I'll do that for a few hours, you know, maybe watch a movie if, if I'm kind of, you know, high strung and then I'll go to sleep and get up and do the same thing the next day. And then on the weekends, I usually have a little bit more chill time. I usually take one day on the weekends to hang out or, you know, go somewhere with my girlfriend or whatever. And then after that, it's just I'm, I'm just working a lot because I feel like there's so much that I don't know that I don't understand. And I don't think that anybody is intrinsically smarter than anybody else. I just think that some people are just working harder than others. And if you really want to be at the top of your game, because one of my goals when I moved out here was that I wanted to be at the top of my game in terms of being a developer. Like, I don't want to be second best or third best. I want to be like there's some really famous developers. Like there's a guy, Brett Victor who is a visionary in terms of informational design and user experience design. One of the original guys who worked on the iPhone and the iPad, I guess it was the iPad at the time because they did the iPad first. And he's brilliant, but he spends a lot of his time reading papers on math and doing math and trying stuff out. And then when he delivers his communication, it's this very succinct, you know, like powerful speech that you just look at it and you're like, man, This guy is thinking on a completely different level because he's just taking the time to do it. It's not because he's smarter. He just has the time and the money to be able to invest his time in doing what he really loves to do. And so I spend a lot of time working on honing my craft, which is building software, trying to design products, trying to understand what's going on, you know, trying to understand how these VCs think and what they're looking for and trying to understand really like what human nature is and what people want at the end of the day, you know, because you you really want to build something, you know, in order to have a legacy, you need to build something that people are going to gravitate towards and they're going to feel like they need it as part of their life, right? You know, if you look at the cell phone, that's a great example of something that, you know, this the smartphone, you know, everybody wants one. You know, my friend has a, has a son who's one year old and he's already onto the smartphone thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's something that we're biologically attracted to, right? With communication, you know, and being able to connect with other people. And, you know, you can hand the son something else, but he might not want that as much as he wants to see what's going on in the cell phone and interact with the cell phone. So in order to make those types of, those types of changes, you just have to, you have to be on top of your game, and it requires a lot of practice. Do you feel like you're at the top of your game? No, not yet. I feel like I'm making my way there. I know a lot, but it's just I felt like I was doing really well until I moved out to Silicon Valley because the level of intelligence here is so – when you peep somebody's intellectual curiosity out here, you can get so – enthralled in a conversation about some very low level technical thing and the conversations are happening everywhere i've been to atlanta a few times i've been to you know every city but there's very rarely a city where you go in and you go to a bar and somebody else is talking about some machine learning algorithm that they're working on on some project, right? Or somebody else is talking about some computer vision thing that they just finished working on. Or they're talking about, you know, algorithms for how to optimize, you know, how to do map reduction. You don't get those types of conversations in most other cities. You know, most places, I would say that's abnormal. But here, you know, you can be out and about and people are talking about all types of problems and how to solve problems. And a lot of people have a lot of really grandiose visions. And so out here, I feel like I'm probably maybe average, maybe a little bit above average out here. 
because I go to these events and I hear these people and I'm like, man, this guy's at the top of his game, right? Like Brett Victor, I would say he's at the top of his game. You know, in terms of, you know, like industrial design, I would say Johnny Ive, he's at the top of his game. And the people that are at the top of their game, if you're inside the tech sphere, you generally know about them. So did you have any mentors that really kind of helped you out? It sounds like you have this really voracious appetite for learning and getting better. Have you had any mentors that have kind of encouraged that or, or helped you along the way? I would say before I moved out here, I had some mentors that were very helpful in terms of business, which I think kind of applies generally and broadly, not even just to business, but just how to work on your personality and how you interact with others. And I had some very strong mentors in that back in the East Coast. But out here, I haven't really found anybody. I mean, there are people that I would love for them to be my mentor. But again, I feel like I need to get to a position where I can earn that spot. You know, because I feel like the, the people that, you know, there are a lot of people that want these certain individuals to mentor them. And in order to get to that spot, you know, there's a very, like I said, there's a lot of competition out here. There are a lot of smart people that have a lot of really good ideas that are very, they're very proactive in trying to reach out and get the attention of the few people that have a very strong influence in this area. And so there are some people that I would love you know, to be my mentor. But in order for me to get to them, I, I feel like I need to do something right. Like I need to shoot a flare up, have them see the flare, say, oh, what's that? And then I can come to them and say, hey, you know, I'm this I'm so and so Joe Blau. I'm working on these types of technologies. And, you know, I'd, I'd love for you to be able to take me in, show me what you know in terms of the business side and in terms of connections and expose me to your world and see if I can take what I know and inject that into what you're building. Who are some of those people? Can you name them? Yeah. So there is obviously I mentioned like Brett Victor. He's you know one of the guys who I really look up to in terms of just information design. And like I wouldn't even know how to find this guy. <laughs> I mean, obviously I can <laughs> find him on like Twitter, but I wouldn't know how to find him to get in contact with him to really you know strike up a, have some one on one time. I could probably try to shoot him an email, but that's kind of weird. And then I'm like, it's maybe not that weird. But then there are also some. Some people in the investment community, like I've been very, I've been following um, the uh, Andreessen Horowitz, that whole group. I would say, um, you know, Mark Andreessen has some pretty genius things that he's that he said, and you know, he also has practical experience applying a lot of the the talks that he gives. Ben Horowitz, also um, those two guys. Um, there's another guy named Benedict Evans who I would love to get some time with. He's this guy who's very thought out in terms of how he thinks about problems. He's very good at connecting a lot of dots that don't seem like they're connectable and then making a very clear picture out of these dots. You know, like when you play those connect the dots games and it's like, here's one, two, three, four, and you're just drawing this line connecting the dots and you don't know what you're doing. He's yeah. the person that basically makes the line. And then at the end, you're like, oh, this is a turtle or this is a, a fish or whatever. He's very good at basically taking those dots and putting them in an order where it makes a clear picture. I would also say Peter Thiel. I would definitely love to get some time on his calendar to kind of because he, he has some thought process that is not really popularized outside of the Valley. But to me, it makes sense. He wrote an excellent book called Zero to One, which I've read a few times, um, where he talks about what it takes to actually build a transformational product. Um, and he goes through some examples and all that. So he's somebody, I would say Elon Musk, but I feel like, you know, Elon Musk is busy running $2 billion companies. He doesn't really have time to like hang out with, with people that are not helping him build rockets or build cars or build trains that travel at supersonic speeds. But he's somebody that I would love to get some time with and kind of be able to chime in or get some advice, get feedback from him. You know, there's just a lot of people that are that are very big in the industry. I would say... Even I would love to have been able to get time with Steve Jobs if I was, you know, around when he was around, because even some of his thought process, a lot of people have had negative experiences with him personality wise. But if you can step away from the personality piece and just really tap into his thought process, I think that some of his thought process and how he views the world, it's very transformational and groundbreaking. So those are just a few people just off the top of my head that I would love to be able to get some info from. There are also some designers, um, like most of these people are people that I've actually been able to speak with, 
But like, um, there's a guy in France, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but he does a lot of stuff on Dribble in terms of interaction design, who mm-hmm. I'd love to really like talk to and just kind of get his thought process because Google, Google has really been big at pushing the um, interaction design model with their material design. So I think that even when I was talking about all the sensors, I think that the visual interaction is something that is key to making products in the future, right? As we've progressed over the history, you've got a lot of pieces that have built on previous pieces, right? So we have the ability to do animation on the phone right now. And I'm not not like very choppy animation. I mean, like full smooth animation. So how do you take advantage of that? And I think that there are a few people that are really doing a good job of taking advantage of that animation. And then there are also a lot of design tools that are helping facilitate that, like Framer.js and uh, Quartz Composer and Pixate and stuff like that. So, Now, one thing I saw when I was doing my research is that you also dabble a little bit in music production. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Tell me about that. So when I was in school and college, I got into music with a few friends we started making a few mixtapes. I mean, I had aspirations of becoming a rapper, even though I was in computer science. And uh, I guess like every young young African-American person, everybody wants to be a rapper <laughs> at some point. So I actually took it. I actually did music at a scientific level. You know, like I would go buy albums, like classic albums that I thought were classic, like Chronic, like Jay-Z's first album. What is it? Uh, Reasonable Doubt. I bought a 50 Cent's album, Get Rich or Die Trying, right? Ma- engineered and mastered by Dr. Dre. Um, so I would download these classical albums and I would break them down. I would break, apart, break them apart sonically and figure out exactly what was going on, figure out exactly how they mixed them. And then I would basically build songs in the same form that these great producers. I mean, I would even download get music from, you know, like the 70s, 60s, 80s, all that stuff. I would download everything because I was really just into music, not necessarily hip hop, but that was my hip hop was my outlet. But everything came in. And when I was in D.C., at that point in time, I was really at a crossroads because I was like, look, I love this music thing. I had a $12,000 studio in my mom's basement. So I was really into this music thing. And then but then at the same time, I was really into this computer thing. And I struggled with this for, I would say, almost two years where I was like, "Okay, I need to make a decision. Right. I need to make a decision for my life because there's nobody who's going to be great at both. Right. Like Michael Jordan is awesome at basketball, but he's just okay at baseball. You know, he's not going to be the best. He might break some records here and there, but it's just because he's an athlete, not because he's great at baseball. So I was like, I need to pick something. And so I wrestled with this for two years because I was like, I really love music. I really love music. And then on the other side, I'm like, I really love programming. I really love computers. So what I ended up doing was I just really had to think about it from a perspective of where I want my life to be in 20 years, right? And really how I judged it was based on what I saw in the current state of the music game, right? So I would look at people like Lil Wayne and where Lil Wayne's life was because he'd been in the music game for about 20 years, right? Or look at people like Puff Daddy who'd been in the game for 20 years or Dr. Dre. Like, do I want my life to be where their lives are or do I want my life to be where the lives of people that I see in computer science are, right? So I'm looking at now Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Michael Dell, those guys on the other side who built these companies. And then I started looking at, well, what are the, what are the benefits, right? Can I, cause I really want to have a family. I'm like, can I have a family and be in the music business? The number of people in the music business that have great families is tiny, right? Because of just the, the environment that you're in, right? You're traveling all the time. You know, there's a lot of people that are vying for your attention. It's a very public facing business where your life is fully exposed, right? And so I wrestled with this, like these types of questions I was just wrestling with for two years, like nonstop. And then when I made that decision to move out to California was basically when I said, all right, I'm putting music down. I sold all my stuff. I still have the microphone that I'm talking to you on is the last thing that I have from my music. It was like a thousand dollar mic, Neumann TLM 103. That's the last thing that I have. And it, you know, it's in my wooden case right here. But 
Everything else is gone. I sold my speak, my monitors. I sold my mixing board. I got rid of all the software that I had. I just got rid of everything. I had hardware amplifiers, hardware compressors, hardware limiters, all that stuff. Just got rid of everything. Packed up the stuff that I had left and flew out to California. And I was like, all right, I'm doing this computer thing. I'm going in full force. I'm going to learn. If I have to relearn all the linear algebra that I learned in college, I'm going to learn it. And I've done that. If I have to relearn, if I have to learn anything new, I'm going to learn it. And I've just put all of my force and effort into doing this computer science thing. And like I said before, I'm trying to get to the top of the game. There's no other place that I really want to be other than at the top. So so I guess you wouldn't want to go back at any point and like pick up music production as a hobby or anything? I mean, I still... Because it, like, it sounds like you really sort of just made the choice. Like, I'm either doing this or that. And then you chose going with programming. Yeah, and I did. And I, I do dabble, like, every once in a while. Like, I still have a digital synthesizer. And here's the thing, right? One of the things that I fundamentally believe is that sound is a very important component in building products, right? Like, if you turn on the jawbone, they said they went through thousands of iterations of trying to get that little or whatever sound it makes when you turn it on. Right. And I remember first turning on my first jam box and being like, oh, man, that's such a cool sound. Like it's a cool synthesized sound. So for me, I still have so much respect for building audio into your product. And a lot of utility applications don't really focus on that. But if you look at games, music is instrumental in gaming. Right. If you've played a game and there was no music and no sound, you'd be like, this thing sucks. So I want to take that same level of that same standard and apply it to consumer products and consumer software, particularly like mobile software, just like it's applied to gaming, right? Because I feel like you get a deeper interaction when you can combine all of those things. When you're not just designing the user interface, you're designing the user interface, you're designing the sound, you're designing the visual interaction, you're designing all of these components that then go into this final product. So I still like music and I still have I still have a synthesizer. I have the OP1, which is like this digital synthesizer that has been getting better ever since I bought it. But it's like a little box, it's got two octaves and it's, you know, it's, I think it was like 700 bucks when I bought it, but it basically you can create any sound you want on it. It's this amazing little piece of hardware, and it's all digital, so you can plug it into your computer, record your, get your, your raw files off of there, and then mix them and engineer them on your computer. But yeah, I mean, right now, I try to, the thing is, I know how much I love music, and I know how much it'll be a distraction, so I just had to, like, cut myself off. I hear you. Okay. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? Yeah, so um, I have, I've tried to buy or acquire every single thing that has to do with Joe Blau online, except I haven't gotten my, I lost my Twitter account, but um, basically joeblau.com is my website. And then my blog is blog.joeblau.com. And on Twitter at Joe underscore Blau. And then on every other platform, GitHub, Dribble, anything else, I'm Joe Blau, just J-O-E-B-L-A-U. All right. Sounds good, man. Thank you so much again, Joe, for such just a great conversation, explaining what it is that you do and really kind of showing everyone this this passion that you have for software development and for coding and for learning. I think that people listening to this will really get inspired by just the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, Maurice, for having me on here. And I appreciate the work you're doing as well for helping promote and kind of get the word out in terms of the different challenges that people are having, you know, you know, just getting a voice in the community. Um, I appreciate the work you're doing and keep it up. I definitely think that what you're doing has a big impact. Thanks, man. And that's it for this week's show. Big thanks to Joe Blau and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Joe's work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks also, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. You can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts, no credit card required, and it's free forever. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. 
Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code 28DOTW at checkout. Lastly, there's Creative Market. It's a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators around the globe. Today's Monday, so there's going to be six free goods waiting for you to download and use right now. So check them out, creativemarket.com. Huge thanks again to everyone who donated to the GoFundMe campaign. I can't wait. I can't wait to make it out to Austin for my presentation and to do some interviews for the show. So if you're going to be at South by Southwest, give me a shout. Let me know. I'll have Revision Pass stickers and probably some other goodies and stuff, too. We'll see. Oh, and don't forget to check out 28 Days of the Web. That's 28daysoftheweb.com number two eight uh great profiles on black designers and developers there share with your friends and your co-workers help to answer the question of where are the black designers they're there their revision path they're everywhere and of course that's also the title of my presentation at south by southwest <laughs> uh this episode was edited by rj basilio and produced by me maurice cherry our intro is by music man dre with intro audio by yellow speaker the outro audio they see me growing is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps get new listeners for the show. And I'll read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.